2: In a moment, we're gonna take you to the world of the brain. We'll
3: discuss how it does odd things when confronted by uncomfortable truth. But first, a truth we're discussing right now is that big picture science needs your help. And that truth can be addressed if you join us on patreon because on patreon your donation gives you more than episodes of big picture science week after week when you join us at patreon.com slash big picture science you also get rewards
2: from access to exclusive bonus material to getting your name dropped in the credits of our podcast patreon subscribers get
3: perks available
2: nowhere else
3: including early and ad-free versions of the show every week no matter how much you donate. Check it out at patreon.com
2: slash big picture science.
3: Thanks for your support. Thank you, and now on with the show.
2: We understand that your brain may be hurting. A lot is being asked of its gray cells during the COVID pandemic. They need to consider epidemiology, population dynamics, public health measures. And yes, we're hearing that there's light at the end of the pandemic tunnel, but we can't throw away those masks yet, even if we want to. So we try to stay rational. And while we can't wish these tough times away, is it possible that wishful thinking has a
4: place in managing things? Is it possible, I asked myself, that at times self-deception might actually be good for us?
2: When to put on your thinking cap. And when to wear your lucky shirt. A discussion about the benefits of rationality and irrationality. I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, another in our regular look at critical thinking, we talk to neurologist Stephen Novella and journalist Shankar Vedantam, both of whom devote time to understanding the complexities and puzzling paradoxes of human behavior. It's all in this navel-gazing episode entitled Skeptic Check, Useful Delusions
2: Before we talk about how delusion can help us, let's be reminded how important rational thinking is and why our brains have been asked to do an inordinate amount of it these days and in a time of distress to behave rationally.
3: It's been tough on some of our brains, at least those that are not used to thinking about the finer points of epidemiology or of concepts like the basic reproduction number or R-naught. I remember scrambling to get my head around R-naught as it began creeping into casual conversations. Seth, did you know what R-naught was in the early days of the pandemic?
2: Well, yeah, I think so, because it's simply a metric of growth. You know how quickly a pandemic will spread? R-naught, it's simply the average number of people a single person with a disease infects. For example, if R-naught equals two, then everyone who contracts the disease spreads it to two others. Now, that would lead to an exponential growth. That would lead to a pandemic. But if R-naught is less than one, well, then the disease slowly dies out.
3: Okay, Seth has had no trouble with R-naught. For the rest of us, at least for me, uh, my brain is already aching thinking about it. But that's just one of many concepts that were novel to us when the pandemic began and which have required more sustained rationality from our noggins than usual.
1: COVID is a good reminder to us that believing in things that are real is much more adaptive and uh, much safer than believing in things that are not real or basing your beliefs on tribalism or ideology or something else. I am Stephen Novella. I'm an associate professor of clinical neurology at Yale University and the producer of the Skeptics Guide to the Universe podcast.
3: Dr. Novello reminds us that while it now seems like we can see the end of the pandemic, we still need to stay the course, stay rational and dispassionate, even though our brains are begging to take vacations. So there's always this conflict,
1: if you will, between the higher brain centers, the analytical part of our brain, and the lizard, emotional part of our brain that reacts more intuitively and more emotionally, uh, that this is sort of an endless sort of internal conflict we face. So yes, we, we, we are sort of asking people to listen to the analytical, evidence-based, logical part of your brain, suppress fears, especially, you know, the unwarranted or irrational fears. So isn't that a bit fatiguing, Steve? Uh, Sure. I mean, yeah, analytical thinking, you know, um, what we call metacognition, thinking about your own thinking, uh, self-reflection, it's all mental work. Absolutely. But that's why it's important to instill habits of thinking rationally and thinking analytically, because it's like it's like training for a marathon. Uh, Are marathons exhausting? Sure. Marathon runners do it, though, because they train for it. So if you do it on a regular basis, it becomes just your habit of thought. It's actually not that tiring. It's just your day-to-day. It becomes normal for you rather than asking people to do something different that you've never done before. Think rationally. You know, yes, if that's not something that you're used to doing, it will be exhausting.
2: Maybe you could give me an example of uh, where we're being asked to make a rational decision, whereas our intuition may suggest that we want to do something else
1: sure you know hey we all want to get out there into the world right we want to go out to restaurants we want to be with our family and loved ones that we don't live with you know i haven't you know hugged my mother in a year until we both got vaccinated and so i you know but we every day we have to make that decision like nope you gotta stay six feet away we gotta wear a mask even though i really want to run over there and hug you uh so yes we are we are being called upon to make those decisions maybe even every day during during this pandemic the thing that we have to really—that's important—is that we don't allow ourselves to rationalize a, a decision we know to be bad. To convince ourselves, "Well, I've been safe. I haven't. I can, I can let my guard down because I—you know—what what have I been exposed to?" But that's that, of course, is what everyone who has COVID says, right? You know, they—they they got it from somebody they thought was safe, and that person thought they were safe because they were only around other people who thought they were safe, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's this chain of rationalization that leads to a lot of the spread of the virus. And so you just have to not let yourself rationalize the behavior that you're being told you shouldn't do and that you, deep down you know you shouldn't do.
2: Well, I mean, how easy is it for the human brain to act rationally? We, I think many of us tend to think of ourselves as basically rational beings and when we're not rational, that's an aberration. Is it really an aberration?
1: So we we like to think of ourselves as rational, but in reality, uh, psychologists say that we're semi-rational. Some things are logical, we follow logic at times, but not all the time. We make decisions based upon emotion, based upon cognitive biases, these habits of thought that are not strictly true or reasonable or rational or logical, but they sort of get us through the day, especially in times of crisis or or high emotion.
2: You know, we talk now about light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the pandemic, but maybe you could discuss any possible examples of conscious decisions that will have import in terms of handling this virus still to come.
1: Well, we we all individually still need to act as if we're in the middle of a pandemic because we are. You know, we, we can't uh, as we say, we can't. We don't want to fumble on the one-yard line here. We're getting very close to the end, but we still need to wear masks. As much as you know, you may not like them. Uh, we need to socially distance. Those two very simple things are extremely effective at reducing the spread of the virus, protecting not only yourself but the people around you and, of course, the public at large. But you know, people are allowing. Uh, in some cases, you know, individuals are allowing pandemic fatigue to take hold. And they think, oh well, the, you know, the, the virus is going away, so I, I don't have to be as careful as I've always been. And you know, what we're seeing is in some places, and, and now in the United States, the virus can come right back. You know, infections can increase when people relax these basic uh, mechanisms of preventing spread. So uh, it's we just have to be a little bit more patient. I know that can be hard, but you know, the the fact that we're close doesn't mean we're there yet.
2: But on the other hand, humans are always a little bit irrational, maybe more than a little bit. Uh, have any particularly novel irrational behaviors manifested themselves during this epidemic? Have you seen anything that we say, man, that's new?
1: Uh, I, I think that the the kind of irrationality we're seeing during this pandemic is more of the same. Uh, this has been around forever. I don't think there's anything brand new. You know, the anti-vaccine movement, for example, has been around for just about exactly as, there, as long as there have been vaccines. You know, the moment they came out, there's been an anti-vaccine movement. So that's nothing new. There was an anti-mask brigade in the 1918 flu you know, pandemic that killed you know tens of millions of people. That's nothing new. This idea of looking at common sense public health measures as an infringement on personal freedom is nothing new. So, it's all themes that have existed before. It's always a matter of like how big is it, are these effects going to be? And again, that's where leadership comes in. Are leaders maximizing or minimizing these irrational impulses that are always there in the background?
2: Yeah, you know, I kind of wonder uh, you know, as a scientist, of course, you know, in science, you're told to follow the data. What counts is observation, measurement, right? That's what decides what you should be doing. That's what decides the truth. And I kind of wonder if there's anything in our natures that keeps us from doing that when it comes to a pandemic. I mean, why why is it that we can't just do that very simple thing? Look at the data, listen to the experts.
1: Well, we have to consider a few cultural phenomena that have been going on. There has been an anti-expertise Cultural movement in this country in the last decade or so, at least. Uh, I mean, again, I think these things have always been there, but it's you know anti expertise. Uh, irrationality has been on the rise. You know, a lot of people also point to social media, which is is a relatively new phenomenon culturally and certainly has been playing a role. It makes it a lot easier to spread misinformation. Uh, social media algorithms seem to be designed to radicalize people, to to lead them down these rabbit holes of increasingly narrow and irrational belief systems and narratives until you can believe almost anything is true. You could believe the world is flat. You could believe, you know, that there are massive conspiracies that are absurd and for which there are no evidence just because, you know, our psychological buttons are being pushed by these social media algorithms. This is humanity. We've always had these buttons, but now they're just being pushed in a very, very effective and systematic way.
2: I think that social media are certainly a metal duck, (laughs) you know, just waiting to be shot at, whatever the problem happens to be. But I kind of wonder, you know, okay, the U.S. may have a failing grade in how we've handled this thing, but there are other countries that have certainly done worse. I'm thinking, for example, of the president of Tanzania. You know, he urged his citizens to pray coronavirus away, and then he died of COVID in March. Uh, there's something about the national appreciation of rationality that's coming to the fore here. There's something deep going on.
1: Absolutely, and this is why we get concerned about the dominant narratives in our culture, even if it's something like Movies and television, you know, the, the fictional stories that we tell each other, but also the dominant political memes, political narratives, political propaganda, even if you will. What is it that we value? What is it that we celebrate? And, you know, it, when a culture values and promotes uh, irrationality or belief systems as personal identity or brands, facts, heretical or when facts become a matter of identity rather than just evidence that we can objectively observe, uh, then that you're vulnerable, you're vulnerable to believing something which is not true, uh, which is always, again, always a risk, always bad, but there are times and situations where it's, it's, uh, much worse. It's more risky. and, And again, obviously a pandemic is one of those times.
2: So Steve, what about the anti-vaxxers, the anti-vax movement in the age of COVID?
1: So yeah, anti, as I said, anti-vaccine dates back as long as there are vaccines. They, that is independent of political party, political ideology. It crosses over both aisles. That's, that's a phenomenon that exists unto itself. Uh, it, it's a combination of anti-corporate, at, on one end of the spectrum, anti-government at the other, uh, some environmentalism, some extreme sort of en- environmentalism is sort of this wariness of toxins has also allied itself with the anti-vaccine movement. At its core, uh, distrust of institutions, distrust of, of medical institutions, specifically distrust of experts. Now, that has allied itself with the political movement of the moment, uh, which is calling into question uh, you know the severity of COVID, our handling of COVID, et cetera. So there are sort of opportunistic, ideological, or political alliances of anti-vaccine that we're seeing today, uh, saying that yeah, the government can't be trusted. They're rushing it. Uh, we, there, there, there's, there are new technologies. They're playing on fears of the unknown, fears of the new. And of course, it's a lot easier to scare people than it is to reassure them with, you know, cold hearted data. But that's what we need to do. We need to look at the data and follow that and not, not our emotions in this case.
2: Well, you've said that a lot is still at stake during this pandemic and you urge us to do the right thing. What, what's at stake with vaccines in particular?
1: So like with the vaccines, for example, you know, the, the stakes are pretty clear um for the individual it reduces your chance of dying of covid of having to go to the hospital maybe losing weeks or months of productivity being away from your family uh you know it's really hard to be sick and alone in a hospital and your loved ones can't see you and you don't know if you're going to live or die i mean that's that's how big the stakes are you know i've I've dealt with patients who were there. We, we, we probably all know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who was in that situation. And it's it's horrible. Uh, you know, one little vaccine can save you from all of that. The stakes are super high. And for society, you know, our economy took a hit. You know, again, lots of uh, of our productivity was shut down in addition to obviously, you know, over half a million people dying. And so, taking a vaccine also protects everybody else. And it is the path out of this pandemic. That's what the vaccine is. So, these stakes are huge. This, you know, one individual decision you make can actually have huge implications.
2: But, Steve, do you notice any diminution in the anti-vax sentiment as more and more people get vaccinated? I mean, something like a third of the country is now. You know has now received at least one shot they're not massive die-offs from people who've been vaccinated who've been inoculated has, has this shifted the the you know the location of the objections here
1: So I think there is a core anti-vax movement that are not going anywhere and that are fairly immune to facts and evidence. But then there's this middle ground of people who are not anti-vaccine. We call them vaccine hesitant. And they are they are convincible. They they will listen to facts and evidence, but they are just concerned about all the stuff they're hearing from the anti-vaxxers about the vaccine. And so those are the people who are starting to shift the sort of vaccine-hesitant but convincible in the middle, as our experience with more millions of people getting vaccinated is looking better and better, we are seeing the numbers in the middle shift towards uh, more likely to get vaccinated, more willing to get vaccinated. But that's sort of the the vaccine-hesitant people, not the core anti-vaxxers who are unmovable.
2: Well, finally, Steve, it's become a sign of reasonableness uh, among politicians to claim to follow the science they they promise they will follow the science does this bespeak some improvement in the nation's science literacy
1: i think it's good to at least pay lip service to science and to to and I, and there is a lot of public faith in science people rate scientists and science as, as something that they that they believe in and that they respect so that remains that remains good uh, it's certainly better than straight up science denial or anti-science. But of course, you can say that you're following the science and following the evidence and just be cherry picking the science that you want to follow. You're you're trying to pick the the evidence to follow you, to follow your ideology or your tribe, rather than genuinely basing what you believe on the facts, on the evidence, on the consensus of scientific and expert opinion. So it's better than nothing, but it's not good enough. We need people to actually follow the science, not just say they're going to follow the science.
2: Steve Novella, thanks so very much for speaking with
1: us. My pleasure. Thank you, Seth.
3: Stephen Novella is a neurologist and professor at the Yale University School of Medicine.
2: So, there are considerable, even life-saving, benefits to acting rationally. But another way, it has survival value. But is there a place in our lives for superstitious thinking too?
4: Delusions are ubiquitous and commonplace, and that when we look out at the world, we believe we are seeing reality for what it is, but in many cases, we in fact are not.
3: Next, a very logical fellow explains the benefits of wishful thinking.
4: It's Skeptic Check, Useful
2: Delusions on Big Picture Science. So in most cases, logic is the way to go in solving problems.
3: Well, there's a caveat to that, and it is coming up. But for now, let's stick with rational thought. Here's one. If everyone who regularly listens to this podcast donated just a couple of bucks every month, we'd have it made.
2: And now logic gives way to wishful thinking. Most people listening to this are going to convince themselves that someone else will help support this weekly in-depth science radio show.
3: So we're reminding you that you are that someone else.
2: Join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. It's quick, it's easy, and for only a couple of bucks a month, you keep the mics hot here at Big Picture Science.
3: Patreon subscribers also get early access to ad-free versions of every new episode.
2: And the rewards grow depending on your giving level. If you join at $5 a month, the tardigrade level, you get access to exclusive bonus material, including news updates, responses to questions, and coming soon movie reviews
3: and at the ten dollar or dolphin level you get to hear your name in the credits of the podcast so go to patreon.com big picture science and check it out signing up is quick easy and keeps this show afloat we appreciate your support thanks
2: first, do no harm. Well, that's part of the Hippocratic Oath. The paradoxic oath might be self-deception could sometimes help. Now, we've been hearing about the importance of channeling our inner Spock as we make decisions during the COVID era. Logical, dispassionate, follow the science. But now we'll hear the case for channeling our inner Kirk. Has it occurred to you that there's a certain inefficiency, and constantly questioning me on things you've already made up your mind about. It gives me emotional security. And finding a place for intuition as a useful mechanism amongst our otherwise rational behaviors.
4: Hi, I'm Shankar Vedantham. I'm the host of the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show, and I'm the co-author with Bill Messler of the new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain.
3: In his book, Mr. Vedantam provides many examples of how delusional thinking, from little lies that we tell ourselves to illusory beliefs and outright falsehoods, can serve to reduce stress and help us manage an uncertain world. Shankar, we
2: like to think that we humans are rational beings, but is that a rational assessment?
4: I'd like to think that I'm rational, Seth, but I've often noticed that other people are not. And I think this is a common experience that many people have, which is we think of ourselves as being logical, rational creatures. But when we look around at the world, we see all kinds of irrationality, all kinds of biases. And part of my book, I think, is an attempt to understand our experiences as we talk to friends and neighbors and hear them spout various theories, delusional theories. And we ask ourselves, how in the world could anyone possibly think that? Your thesis seems to
2: be that, well, that behavior isn't really bad behavior. It's actually correct behavior, at least from nature's
4: point of view. I think my point is that delusions are ubiquitous and commonplace, and that when we look out at the world, we believe we are seeing reality for what it is, but in many cases, we in fact are not. Now, I am making the contention in the book that there are many of these instances of self-deception that could potentially be good for us, but I want to be very clear and make this clear right from the outset. I'm not suggesting that all self-deceptions are good for us or that all delusions are good for us. In fact, there are many self-deceptions and many delusions that are very, very bad for us. However, understanding that both useful delusions and dangerous delusions have the same psychological roots is very helpful both in embracing the useful ones and in rejecting the dangerous ones. I'm going to quote you from your book. The goal is not to waste precious
2: mental resources on the unimportant task of seeing reality accurately, but instead to focus on the far more important tasks of survival and reproduction, what evolutionary biologists call fitness. So we're the survivors of, you know, fit individuals of the past. And maybe you can give an example of kind of, in some sense, irrational behavior that increases our fitness.
4: I can give you any number of different examples, but let me just give you one that took place just a few minutes ago. Right before I began this interview, I just had something delicious to eat. And as I was chewing, I realized that my perception of deliciousness is a delusion because of course, there is no such thing as deliciousness in the outside world. Deliciousness is a layer that the brain imposes on incoming signals from our, from my taste buds. So in other words, I ate something sweet. My evolutionary ancestors, you know, over many many millions of years, realized that eating sweet things means more calories. You're more likely to survive in the event of famine. Our brains evolved to process sweet things as delicious so when I bite into something delicious uh, as I did a second ago, my brain processed it as being delicious, as being sweet. Now, the fact that it isn't real Does not mean that it's not useful. In our evolutionary history, in fact, it was very useful to perceive certain things as sweet because that sweetness conferred a certain survival value. That's the kind of delusion that I mean when I talk about the ways in which evolution has handed down to us brains that process reality in certain ways that nudge us in certain directions. In the case of sweet foods, um, our brains are nudging us to consume high calorie foods because in our ancestral past, high calorie foods were a source of survival. But you can also See many other more profound examples of this. The relationship that parents have with their children, for example, is often marked by huge heaps of delusion where parents believe that children are the most special creatures in the entire universe, miracles beyond all miracles. And of course, this feels true to me as a parent that my child indeed is extraordinarily special, but I recognize that it's a delusion, but I also recognize it's a useful delusion because this delusion prompts me as a parent to invest in my child, to care about my child, and to endure the many difficulties and challenges of parenting.
2: So when somebody tells me, Seth, we've got to modify your diet because I want you to eat right, what they really want me to do is eat wrong, at least from the standpoint of evolution. I mean, 100,000 years ago, when our brains were being wired up, survival simply wasn't improved by having a personality like uh, Mr. Spock or Data
4: that's exactly right, and I and I, I'm not sure even separate from a ten thousand years ago. I'm not sure even today our personalities are going to be uh, we're going to be very successful if we behave like Mr. Spock or or Data in in real life. But but your point I think is exactly well taken. The foods that we eat are foods that we are drawn to because in our ancestral past such foods basically gave our ancestors a survival advantage. Now, our brains evolve somewhat slowly, so in some ways our brains are still responding to stimuli that served our ancestors well. It turns out that sweet foods and high-calorie foods indeed did serve our ancestors very well. They don't always serve us very well because we live in a world that has a glut of calories where sweet foods are abundant, especially in, in rich countries. And so, but the same algorithms in the brain that prompted our ancestors to go looking for sweet foods, prompt me today to go looking for sweet foods. They're both delusions. You could argue that one of them was a useful delusion 10,000 years ago, perhaps it's not so useful today. I hope you don't mind if I snack during this interview. <laughs> so you, you mentioned
2: ritual uh, in your book. It seems that ritual is part of all human behavior, even as far back as the paleontologists could be able to discern. Is that more than just uh, you know, the social pressure, the social benefit of fitting in, going along with whatever the ritual is? Do, do we do that so you know, the next guy over still looks upon
4: us kindly? yeah so when we think about rituals you know and, and rituals are so ubiquitous and widespread across human cultures many of us think of rituals in a religious context but really even in the secular world there are all kinds of rituals when a new president is inaugurated there are rituals in, in, involved with that with that inauguration when when a, when a quarterback throws a touchdown the you know the quarterback points towards the heavens or you know the athletes sometimes touch the turf before entering on the field or people cross themselves or or, or you know raise their arms heavenward when good things happen, or touch wood when, when they're worried about something bad happening, all these rituals that basically on the surface of it are absurd. Because of course, anyone who's a rationalist or a logical person would say, well, obviously these rituals don't accomplish anything. Touching wood cannot possibly have any effect on a bad thing not happening to you, or pointing heavenward is not going to make it more likely that you're going to throw another touchdown pass. And yet all of us or many of us are drawn to these rituals. A wide variety of studies have tried to understand why it is human beings are so drawn to these rituals. And I think some of the examples, some of the answers include that rituals tend to bind us to one another. When we practice rituals together with other people, we feel closer to those other people. And rituals also have a soothing Uh, effect on us. Uh, they, They soothe our anxieties. When I wear the shirt of my favorite football team before the football team plays a game, I know at some level it doesn't affect the outcome of the game, but it makes me feel like I have some control over something that actually I don't have control over.
2: I think many people don't realize how often we engage in ritual outside of you know organized ritual, maybe you know at church or whatever. Maybe you could give an example of a common ritual other than wearing a your team's favorite shirt that most people
4: do almost
2: unconsciously.
4: I'll give you a very simple ritual from my own life that I've developed over the last 12 months. Uh, You know, my wife and I have started going for walks as a result of being stuck at home in a pandemic. And in the first few days, uh, first few weeks of the pandemic, we walked in all kinds of different places. We went to different, you know, we found different roads to walk on and different parks to visit. And then very soon we sort of fell into a certain ritual. You know, we woke up in the morning and now we didn't have to talk very much about where we're going to go for our morning walk. We just sort of fell into a routine and we went for a walk. And after some time, the ritual of going to the same place for the walk with the same person starts to have a bit of a soothing effect on you. You say, okay, this is how my day starts. I'm walking with this person. We're walking in the same woods. The same things happen. The seasons change. But I have a sense of continuity. All of us practice these kinds of rituals.
2: Isn't that habit? I mean, what's the difference between habit and ritual?
4: Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're, they're inter- it's an interesting question what the difference is between a habit and a ritual, and I would argue that much of what we call habits are probably rituals as well. And the fact that they are rituals in some ways is what lends them power. Now, it, it is the case that I think rituals perhaps have an additional layer on habits, which is they sometimes have a meaning that we attribute to the activity beyond just the habit. So with the going for a walk, I don't necessarily assume that going for a walk is going to bring me good fortune during the course of the day, but, you know, touching would when someone you know mentions something, that, something bad that could happen, I'm certainly implying that I have control over the future in, in a way that maybe a habit does not. So there are many elements of this. I think habits and rituals are probably twin sides of the same coin, but rituals probably have the additional effect of bonding us to our larger groups and also giving us some sense of control over the uncontrollable. Many of the ideas in my book explore the idea that human beings find a lack of control aversive. We find it uncomfortable to be in a position where we don't understand something, where we don't have control over something, where we're anxious about something. And we often seek to reassert that control by seeking things like rituals, by seeking things like symbols, or seeking things like the solidarity of our tribes.
3: Well, Seth, have you established some rituals during this uh, pandemic era that you have found particularly soothing? Well,
2: well, yeah, one ritual is I never go out, but that's not really a ritual. That's just modified behavior. Uh, but no, nothing that I would say is specifically for the pandemic, really. I, I, I guess I do back away from people if I have to talk to them in their too close.
3: Okay, see so you're still thinking quite rationally. Something that I began doing is I started to put a lot of our food in jars. I've moved beans and popcorn and even milk and put them in jars and it just it's had a soothing effect. I never used to put things in jars. Do you, what what do you think's going on? Why would I be doing that? Well, I don't
2: know. Maybe <laughs> you're worried that if the neighbor comes into the kitchen and you know sneezes I mean, who's to say?
3: That's the thing. It doesn't have—there's no real logic to it. It's just made me feel calmer to have some of our food in jars. Of course, no neighbor has been inside our house in, in months and months, so that's not the reason.
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know. I guess you're just trying to can your anxieties in a way. Contain them. <laughs> I
3: <laughs> I like that. I, I, I like that. Maybe that is what it Well is. I'll have to say— It makes me feel like some things are manageable at a time when so much feels like it is not. Put on your lucky shirt, or in my case, pull out your lucky jars, as we continue our discussion with Shankar Vedantam
4: parents believe that children are the most special creatures in the entire universe. And of course, this feels true to me as a parent, that my child indeed is extraordinarily special, but I recognize that it's a delusion, but I also recognize it's a useful delusion.
2: It's our regular look at critical thinking. Skeptic check useful delusions on Big Picture Science. We've been talking about how habit and ritual can help us lower stress and thrive. But what about beliefs in things that are simply just not true? Or belief in theories that are not falsifiable, which is to say they can't be disproven with a counterexample.
3: We continue our conversation with Shankar Vedantam, host of the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show. Shankar describes how delusions connected with extreme beliefs can be useful too, although sometimes that might mean we have to rationalize the existence of two contradictory ideas.
2: He says we find this happening among people who believe in end-of-the-world prophecies. You know, when the prophecy fails to materialize, when the aliens don't land and the the floods don't come, well, the believers actually don't
4: back down. And neither did Leon Festinger, who was in some ways one of the first psychologists to try and understand this phenomenon. Uh, More than half a century ago, he infiltrated a group that believed the world was going to come to an end on a certain day. And he infiltrated the group precisely to study what you just uh, mentioned, which is on the Day of Judgment, when the world did not come to an end, Festinger wanted to understand how people in this group, this cult, basically would process the fact that the world hadn't ended. And he expected that they would tell themselves very logically and rationally, "Okay, I thought the world was going to end. Clearly, the world has not ended. I made a mistake. I was wrong. That, emphatically, is not what happened. The people in the group, when the day of judgment came and the world did not come to an end, they told themselves now a new story. And the new story was, because we thought the world was going to end, we took various measures and we put various things in place that prevented the world from coming to an end. Festinger eventually coined the term cognitive dissonance, and this the idea of cognitive dissonance, as many of your listeners undoubtedly know, is when the brain is trying to reconcile two contradictory things. So on the one hand, reality was telling the members of this cult that the world had not come to an end, that, the, that their delusion was wrong, but another part of their brain was saying it would be painful and difficult and embarrassing to admit that we were wrong, And so their brains came up with rationalizations to protect the original delusion. Uh, You know, a
2: kind of leitmotif in your book concerns the church of love. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like a pretty noble idea, maybe even a noble institution. Uh, Maybe you could briefly describe what the church of love was all about.
4: Absolutely. So the Church of Love was an organization started by a balding middle-aged man in a small Midwestern town. And over the course of several decades, late 60s, 70s, 80s, he was a writer and he invented various characters, uh, mostly young women whom he called angels. And then he started writing love letters in their voices to thousands of men across the United States. Uh, He eventually called this organization the Church of Love, and in its heyday, the Church of Love had as many as 30,000 dues-paying members. Um, And so these members would receive letters from these uh, young women whom they called angels. Many of the members wrote back to the young women who had written letters to them. Some of them poured out their hearts. Over the course of weeks and months and sometimes years, some of the members fell in love with the women they thought they were corresponding with, even though they had never spoken to the women or met them in person. The most remarkable thing about the story is when Don Lowry, the con man, was finally brought to trial on charges of mail fraud. Many members of the Church of Love, of course, were outraged that they had been taken for a ride. But what I found astonishing was that some members of the Church of Love showed up at Don Lowry's trial to defend him. They said the Church of Love had kept them from depression. A couple of people said the Church of Love had kept them from suicide. And in some ways, this story, this remarkable story, was my starting point for an exploration for ways in which it's po- is it possible, I asked myself, that at times, self-deception might actually be good for us. Even when we're believing something that isn't true, is it possible that sometimes this could actually have a good effect on us?
2: All right. Affection, affliction. Addiction, <laughs> the Church of Love. I mean, you take an example in the book, and you you talk about a guy who, you know, he was sort of the uh, the kid nobody wanted to invite to the dance kind of guy. You know, no social life, sort of a, almost stereotypical in that way. And he falls in love with this correspondent from the Church of Love, and when it turns out that the Church of Love is all just a a, a scam, and the money he's been sending to his you know girlfriend is all going to the organizers there he still comes out and defends
4: the church of love from an evolutionary point of view. How do I interpret this? You know, I think in many ways, even though this is an extreme example, I think variants of this actually happen everywhere and are actually ubiquitous. Uh, And let me give you just the simplest of examples. In our intimate lives, all of us form bonds and relationships with people. And those bonds might be bonds with our parents, bonds with our lovers, partners, spouses, children. Now, routinely that these people in our lives do things that upset us, do things that annoy us, do things that irritate us. And there are two ways you can sort of think about this. You can think about it very rationally and say, I'm doing a cost-benefit calculation and I've decided that at a certain point, my child is actually no longer a net benefit to me, my child is a net cost to me, and I'm gonna revise my relationship and I'm gonna renounce my child. Now, most of us, in fact, don't do this. Most of us come up with rationalizations and defense mechanisms that protect our relationships, even if it means ignoring some of the facts. Now, there's no doubt that sometimes this can lead us to bad places. People stay in abusive relationships longer than they should. People get hurt in some of these relationships. I'm not saying that self-deception is always good for us, but I think it's undoubtedly the case that in many, many instances, self-deception can play a salutary role in our lives. Uh, Imagine for a moment, Seth, that, you could visit every couple getting married in the United States over the course of the next year, and you went up to them on their wedding day, and you asked them, what do you think the probability is that you're gonna get divorced? What do you think the answers are gonna be? Do you think the answers are 50% of the couples getting married will tell you that their marriage is likely to end in divorce? If they are statisticians, (laughs) if they are logical, if they're rational, if they know the facts, they would, in fact, tell you just that, but almost no one would tell you that. Now, you could argue that that's a dangerous delusion because people enter into marriage with you know rose-colored glasses, but I would argue that this delusion is actually very valuable to have. It actually helps that people enter into marriages with the full expectation that they're going to spend a lifetime with this person. Their belief, their trust, their love for this other person is one of the reasons the relationship endures. There is a reason we have the phrase, love is blind. Now, in the case of the Church of Love, perhaps that blindness was taken to an extreme, but I would argue that there but for the grace of God go all of us.
2: There was one other very interesting example that you mentioned uh, in the book, and that is the bulletproof shirt. As an example of a very well-practiced ritual, maybe you can tell me what the bulletproof shirt was. I mean, it sounds a little self-explanatory, but, you know, why is it remarkable?
4: Yeah. Ever since the firearm was invented, various rituals have arisen around the world involving bulletproofing rituals uh, where some people have said, you know, wearing this shirt can basically protect me against the trajectory of a bullet. Other people have said, you know, here's a charm that you wear that makes you invulnerable to bullets. And of course, you know, Hollywood has played with the idea of, of people who are able to catch bullets in their teeth or or duck bullets that are being fired at them. All kinds of beliefs we have about how we can dodge a bullet that's traveling faster than we can see or, you know, traveling even before we can hear the sound of the report of the gun going off. So when we see these rituals and these beliefs around the world, you can say on the one hand, people are delusional and people believe things that are crazy because if anything is falsifiable in terms of a scientific theory, you would imagine that a bulletproofing ritual is extremely falsifiable. If you believe in a bulletproofing ritual and someone fires a gun at you, you have very, very strong evidence to falsify your hypothesis. So yet, why do these rituals Rituals, and why do these beliefs persist? And of course, I think in many cases, they arise because people are experiencing moments of great vulnerability or moments of great harm, and they don't have the capacity to do, actually do anything to protect themselves. I describe an unusual story involving a, a village in Africa that a couple of economists studied where uh, the village was under raids from these militant groups that were really you know, harming people in the most vicious way imaginable. And an elder in the tribe came up with a ritual that was supposed to be a bulletproofing ritual that would protect the youngsters in the village from being harmed by the bullets of these of these raiders. And, of course, what, what happened as a result of people's belief in, in this ritual is that the next time the militants came to attack the village, many young people actually stood up and started fighting back against the militants because they believed that they would be protected against the, 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 the hail of bullets. Now, of course, this did not end well for many people. Many of them died. But when they died, people told themselves stories that, in fact, they had not implemented the details of the ritual properly, which is why they died. But the fact they were willing to stand up and fight meant that, at least in this particular case, the militants started to avoid attacking this village because they said, there's something about these crazy villagers, even though we have guns and they don't, they're willing to stand up and fight us. Let's stop bothering with this village. So in a very practical sense, this bulletproofing ritual in some ways accomplished what it was the village wanted to see happen. is the, the raids on the village came to an end. Now, it didn't come to an end because the ritual actually made people bulletproof, but it came to an end because the bulletproofing ritual produced psychological consequences that ended up having real consequences. Let's take an example of psychological consequences of
2: encouraging a delusion that can help in very personal circumstances. I'm thinking of the emotional value of telling someone that things are going to be okay, even if you privately have doubts. Is it okay to encourage a delusion?
4: Yeah, let me give you an even more extreme example, Seth. Let's say someone is in your home, uh, and maybe this is a loved one or a a colleague, and, and they tell you that they're suffering from a terminal illness. And they tell you that they're about the, the the diagnosis is that they're going to die in three weeks' time. They're they're deeply anxious about it, but a belief in a higher power, a belief in an afterlife, is comforting them because they believe that there is going to be a future where they will be reunited with other friends and family, and one day they will see their present friends friends and family in the afterlife. Let's say if you're a card-carrying skeptic and you're not a believer in the afterlife and you don't believe there's going to be an afterlife, what is your obligation and responsibility at this moment? Now, you could argue my only obligation and responsibility is to the facts as I see them, and therefore my obligation is to tell you, you know, you're delusional in thinking that there's going to be an afterlife. There really is no afterlife. And yes, the last three weeks of your life are going to be filled with terror, but soon it's going to be over and then you won't have anything to worry about. Or do you tell people, yes, you know, I understand where you're coming from and I can hear you. You don't actually necessarily have to agree with them, but I think the question is, do you actually denigrate their views? Um, many years ago, I was having a conversation with uh, the, the evolutionary biologist and the writer, Richard Dawkins, and I asked this very question to him because he'd just, he was in the process, in fact, of completing his book, The God Delusion. It hadn't yet come out at the time. And I put this question to him, and Dawkins was silent. And he was silent partly because it really is a very difficult question because it pits two very important human constituencies against one another. And the first constituency is to tell the truth, be honest, be factual. And the second constituency is to be kind and to be compassionate. And I think both those things are simultaneously true. To be a good human involves being willing to tell people the truth, even when the truth sometimes hurt. But sometimes being a good human also involves extending empathy and compassion to people. And I know, speaking just for myself, in my 20s and 30s, I probably would have erred on the side of just saying the brutal facts, no matter what the consequences. And as I've grown older, I've, I think I have mellowed to some extent, and I have said empathy and compassion might in some ways be more important, especially when it's not doing any harm. Uh, if, if, if believing in an afterlife is giving people false hope that they're going to live for 20 years instead of two months, that might be problematic. But if believing in an afterlife is going to make the last two months of someone's life more tolerable, I say I'm all for it.
2: Okay, Shankar, I hear that we don't always want to behave like Mr. Spock, but, you know, behave more humanely. But I'm also a member of a skeptics organization, and I'm a serious advocate for science literacy. So, finally, I mean, you kind of make it sound as if laboring for a totally rational view of the world is kind of swimming upstream, and maybe always will be.
4: Yeah, I think it is. And I say it with sadness because I think I'm actually a member of your club. I I am a rationalist and a logical person at heart, and I really would love to live in a world where everything was decided by science, and science could tell us what the right thing was to do, and people would follow the results of peer-reviewed studies. But take something like climate change, Seth. You know, We've seen that there are large numbers of people who don't believe in the reality of climate change, and the response of rationalists like us when we see climate change deniers is to say, okay, I know the answer. Let me give this person the 678th peer-reviewed study that shows the reality of climate change. Now, anyone who looks at us would actually have to say, you're the people who have the delusion. You're the people who believe that if the first 677 peer-reviewed studies didn't work, you believe the 678th study is going to work. So yes, I believe that it's a mistake It's not a mistake to believe in science and it's not a mistake to believe in the power of science or the importance of facts. My book does not say anything about or in any way sort of denigrate the importance of those things. But it absolutely is the case that for science and logic and reason and facts to actually accomplish their goals, to get us where we want to go, to make sure that the world actually takes steps to avoid climate change, we might need to turn to the self-deceiving brain to accomplish those goals. You know, I'm a sports fan and i'm often struck when i'm watching sports games about the lengths that people will go to to demonstrate their loyalty to, to their sports teams and these are just you know teams that happen to have names that belong to the cities these people happen to live in there's no deeper connection than that and yet people will tattoo the names of their sports teams on their foreheads they will you know stand in 15 degree weather you know bare-chested with the colors of their team painted on their chest and sometimes when i watch these demonstrations i ask myself where is the same passion when it comes to saving the planet you know the planet is the only home that we have if the planet disappears we all go poof we're all extinct why don't we have the same passion demonstrated to saving the planet that we have for sports fandom and you have to ask yourself the question is sports fandom elicited by giving people studies? Is it elicited by giving people facts or is it elicited by giving people symbols, stories, tribes, and narratives that pull people into wanting to support a certain cause?
2: Well, I have to say, Shankar, that it's been uh, interesting to speak with you. I I attribute that to the uh, lucky shirt that I'm wearing and my lucky (laughs) socks.
4: And I want to thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. It's been a real pleasure.
3: Shankar Vedantam is the host of the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show and the co-author of Useful Delusions, the Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Well, Seth, as we consider the big picture here, there was one thing that really struck me, and it may seem like a detail, but that both Steve and Shankar talked about the usefulness of habits. Steve Novella talked about the important habit of thinking rationally in a pandemic, and Shankar talked about the soothing habits that help us manage stress. Yes, but Shankar
2: also said that whether a delusion is one that you can you know, tolerate or whether it's one that is harmful to you, they both can please us. And I think that that's a really key statement because that shows that the devil is in the details. It's hard for us to know what to believe and what we should believe because every delusion pleases us. That's right. But I I must say that I was somewhat pleased, and I don't know why, by the argument that not all delusions, they may be wrong, but not all delusions are bad.
3: Well, thank you to the talented team that make up our reality, Senior Producer Gary Niederhoff and Assistant Producer Sarah Derwin. I am Executive Producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Reno Scholsky david and Sammy David and to the William K. Bowes Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that promotes critical thinking about and understanding of science. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
3: Special thanks to some of our Patreon velociraptors, Baron Von Awesome, Tim Condon, and
2: JW from sunny San Diego.
3: Original music in this episode by Dewey DeLay. This episode of Big Picture Science is one of our regular looks at critical thinking, skeptic check, useful delusions. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, please visit our archive at BigPictureScience.org. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimburger Family Foundation. At the Trimburger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast.
4: So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch.